0: Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, for more information. You can send along an email to me there at john at johnwarrenmedia.com, or you can just simply use our contact form on the website. Well, we've had some interesting, interesting issues recently, and I know these episodes are released a few weeks after, They are recorded, but we've had the Donald Trump arraignment. Uh, We've had some interesting economic issues. And this week, I I really want to talk about the the role of government in the economy. This economy interests me, and I know I talk about it a lot, and I know there's some redundancy because there's only so much you can say about the economy. But I am fascinated by the implications of covid-19 on our economy. I don't still understand employment in this economy. I think the baby boomers kind of retiring and staying home and doing other things has a lot to do with our being so fully employed when the when the unemployment rate is below 4%. We are fully employed. I know that doesn't help you if you're, you're looking for a job and can't find one or can't find the right one or can't find one that is desirable or can't find one at the right compensation level. I understand that there are some people who are hurting, especially in the context of rising prices. And that's that's still an, kind of not out of control, but that that's an exacerbating factor on this economy. It's it's still tough to go to your supermarket and. Experience these prices, and and then there are still some shortages, and the the shortages are less prevalent, uh, less widespread, but they there are some shortages still of specialty goods. The car market, the automobile market in America, has changed. The manufacturers have, I, I think, deliberately slowed production. They're finding that we will pay more if if there is some scarcity, and that that kind of makes sense for those of you who've studied economics, you know, if, if, if supply is reduced and demand is kind of constant, then it seems to me that prices typically, typically rise. Well, that, that has happened. I'm, I'm a bit of a car nut and, uh, you know, it used to be that you had choices. You could, you could go and, and shop and there were different color alternatives and, and, and different, um, and there still are, and there's, there still are different grade levels and all the rest, but lots of people are, buying cars before they get to the dealer. And because the, the production has slowed and I I'm not smart enough to know whether it's because of manufacturing cutbacks or supply chain issues or some combination, or we haven't quite recovered from the COVID slowdown as the media would have us believe. I, I, am not sure what it is. It might be a combination of those things, but that, that market has changed and and the economy has changed. And I wonder you know, I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist, but it, it seems to me that people have changed the way they spend money, and I have to wonder: is it because we're, we we survived a pandemic, kind of like the Spanish flu in the early 20th century, and and you know that brought on kind of the Roaring Twenties? We survived World War One and the Spanish flu, and and are, uh, you know, are we just so glad to be here that we've we've kind of said, "Well, let's go for it"? That appears to be what happened, and then you've got. Our government's involvement in this, you've got the government printing money for stimulus and PPP, payroll protection program, if you're not familiar, put millions and millions of dollars, if not billions, in the hands, yeah, it was billions, uh, in the hands of uh, companies throughout the country who maintained within the boundaries of a formula their payroll. So there's a lot to unpack there, and I can't really do it well for you I'd like to I, I think history tells this story better than I do guessing at what's really going on I can just say it's peculiar it's peculiar that asset prices and when I say that I'm I'm specifically you could you could mean a lot of things when you say that but I'm I'm specifically talking about the housing market and the stock market haven't really adjusted dramatically those markets are kind of back to normal Uh, if there is a normal especially in the housing market you're not seeing the crazy pricing and the bidding and all of that but in florida where i am there there, there's still competition for if a good house is well priced it 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 sells pretty quickly and you might have to compete for it if it's not such a great house and it's not so great priced though now now it's sort of it's not sold at such a great price or offered at such a great price then it kind of sits around a little bit. And that that was, you know, a year ago that was that was not happening. So when I peel this back and try to try to look at root causes, which I tend to do, then I I have to go back and think about, okay, what is government's role in the economy? And that is a that is a really challenging issue to unpack. And it's very challenging to talk about succinctly. And our media tends to like to polarize us. And I say like intentionally. They, they, there are media camps on both sides of this issue. Just think of the simplest way is far left and far right media. They tend to want to have us believe that they understand and, and their, their talking heads, their pundits understand the the purpose of government or the way government is to relate to the economy. And I think both sides get it wrong. And and I, it, it's funny because you'll hear all media uh, uh, across the spectrum. That's let's, let's stop the, the, the liberal and conservative thing. And let's just say media in general, they will say things like the Biden economy or the Trump economy or the Obama economy, economy or the bush economy or the they'll they'll describe the implications of those four recent presidents efforts economically as if the executive branch of government is somehow responsible for the economy and so the environment we find ourselves in and i think it's I I think it's due largely to the way, I don't want to sound like a dinosaur, but I think it's largely due to the way we get our news. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to a friend about this, that the, in the old days, for something to bubble up to a level that gets national attention, it had to go through the editors of newspapers. There were some national newspaper, and they're they're still around, but... Yeah, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, and there are others. I don't want to leave any out, but you know, those types. And then there was, you know, the wall street journal, which focused on business primarily back then it's gotten more into news now. And and then there were the, the three big networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC, and, and maybe one or two others came along, but, but they're, they they're NPR and some of those things. But, But it it had to, the news story had to kind of go through a process to get pushed out there. And it was, it was slower. You kind of couldn't wait to get the morning newspaper at the end of your driveway back then, because you'd read, oh, here's what they said about this. And here's what the editorials were and all that. Well, we've gained some things, you know, we get better information more quickly. Well, we get more information more quickly. Let's say it that way. And we still have to kind of decipher, still have to kind of consider the source. But this this news cycle means that something like Donald Trump's arraignment earlier this week. It gets blasted on the news and examined and cross examined. And then after a couple of days, it's it's gone. I mean, now he's a little bit of an exception because he has these passionate followers and passionate haters, and you know, you still hear it mentioned. But but these stories don't they 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 circulate like wildfire, and then they go away, and we're on to the next shiny object that floats by. So I think that's part of the problem—the the way the media just operates. But the media has become this—I don't know—they play this accountability game where where they they want to hold the administration's feet to the fire. So you have 24-hour access to media, and then the media wants access to the White House all the time and to Congress. And the two political party system, the two party system is, is, is really not what our founders envisioned when they wrote the constitution, but it's what we have today. And either side relishes the opportunity to make the other side look bad. So you put all that together and each administration in, in recent memory. And I, I, I I think it was different 20 or 30 years ago, but maybe not. Each administration goes goes out of its way to to try to look good, to try to play to the press. And I know it sounds old school to say it, but, but you know, opinion polls, we'd lick our fingers, see which way the wind's blowing before we take a position, and certainly before we talk about things a certain way. And so it, it made me cringe. I'll, I'll give you an example of this. It made me cringe when Donald Trump would take credit for the stock market and and, and, and it makes me cringe when the press says the Biden economy does this or that uh, back when oil prices were skyrocketing. This is the Biden economy. This is they try to pin it on the Biden administration. Even liberal press outlets did that. Oh, my goodness. Gas has doubled in price. It's Joe Biden's fault. And we know smart listeners to Relentless Truth, you know that. Joe Biden really doesn't determine oil prices. Now, I know some of you are gasping. Oh, you know, he's an idiot or whatever it is you think of him. Uh, you you think that that's fine. I, I'm not a big fan of his for sure. I'm not a fan of his at all. But but I don't I don't lay at his doorstep all of the economic indicators, all of the the performance of the U.S. economy. The president sets the tone in this in this media age this this rapid media age of course the president sets the tone um, more so than ever but if you go back to i mean world war 1 world war II, the great depression you go back to, through all of our history there there's been tone setting by leaders for a long time and 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 i i believe that that's important it communication is important the confidence in the economy uh, by the consumer is most important i'm not understating the importance of the office of the presidency it's not a figurehead position it does more with executive orders and other things than our framers of our constitution envisioned i believe but if you if we just look at this issue and we say okay what is government's role in the economy, I think that's a conversation worth having. And I'm not naive enough to think that I'm going to fix this with a podcast episode, but I think it might be interesting just to, just to kind of review it for a minute. So you have this beautiful constitution and, and, and give or take, it has about 5,000 words, uh, whether you're counting all the amendments or not, but, it's a brief document. It's it's one of the most concise uh, governing documents in the world, including all of our 50 state constitutions. I think it's true. I'm not 100% certain of this, but I believe I read that this is the most brief of the constitutions of all of the states. If you compare the U.S. Constitution to the states, most states have, you know, many, many more words, paragraphs, pages length than the US Constitution. And there are times where I wish the framers had been clairvoyant and could have looked ahead and written more. But more often than not, there are times I wish they had written less or been more precise in a couple of sections. And we've talked about that on this on this podcast. If you have an interest in learning more, you can you can go back and look at some of our I think I did a three part series on the U S constitution some time ago. You can find it. If you've struggled to find it, send a note to me and I'll, I'll send the episodes to you or point out where they are. So um, you have this, you have this document though, and it, it lays out for us in article one, the Congress article Two, the presidency or the executive branch. And then article three is, is all about the judiciary, and really none of these sections are, are, are lengthy. Um, the, the one on the Congress is the most lengthy followed by the presidency. The presidency section though is, is, is really brief compared to the the one on the Congress. And, and then, and then you have article three is the judiciary and it is, it is barely a full page on. in if you, if you look at it on eight and a half by 11 paper with reasonable font, So, and, and it's, it spells out the judiciary and, and, and even, even the treasury, uh, in, in one section, um, but, uh, article one tells us, uh, you know, what the, what the role of the Congress is and, and each of these sections has kind of qualifications for holding office and process for, for, for elections, But article two is, is interesting. The one on, on the presidency, since we, I want to focus on that one just for a minute. Since we, uh, since we talk often about the ex president, whatever the president's name is at the time, it's his economy. What's interesting about this is, I mean, you can, by inference say, you know, he is the president of the United States. So he's, he's responsible for everything, but, you're really stretching the constitution to suggest that the president is responsible for the economy. And I know constitutional scholars have opined on this, but I'm not going to play a constitutional scholar, but even if you go back to the beginning, the, the preamble uh, of the constitution or the, or the beginning of article one, you're gonna find this, and I know you've memorized this or maybe memorized a song to this effect, but but the, the the people of the United States, the purpose of the Constitution, we state in the preamble, is to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare. That's that's complicated and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity and we then it goes on do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America now and then you, then they di- they dive in to to the the congress the legislative branch and and you know we have a bicameral congress a house and the senate and they explain very clearly the the roles the the terms they serve the frequency of meeting and all, all the rest. It, it, it's really quite a beautiful document. I, I quite like it. I like to read it. I like to study it. I like to reference it whenever, whenever certain things happen. It's got some cool concepts. Most people don't know. Most people don't know what a bill of attainder is, for example, or, or, uh, ex post facto law there. There's just some things that are helpful to know. And you can, you can study this stuff on your own. Just, just get a copy and, and read it. But this this whole business of, of the government, U.S. government and the economy, fascinates me. When we get to Article 2, it says in Section 1, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and together with the vice president, chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. And then it goes through several paragraphs, a quite lengthy one, that talks about the electoral college what we call the electoral college the election the election process and, and yes it's it's complex and yes it feels archaic but it's beautiful it 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 really does allow smaller states to participate in electing our president that that's the that's the argument i the constitutional argument i would make for being in favor of leaving it alone those who those who favor the the a Democrat a purely democratic process that that is that is kind of the mob rule that some of our framers warned us about. You say, "Oh, it's just not fair. How can a president win the popular vote?" Well, if you study the electoral college, you'll you'll get it. I think most people do, and it, it just it just makes more sense. It it, it you you would only have uh, presidential elections would only. The only consequential campaigning would be done in four or five states if it was uh, the majority of the population, the, the majority of the uh, registered voters uh, electing a president without the electoral college. So that's a, another conversation for another way. But it, but but this document goes on and it says that the the Congress can, can you know, choose the electors. And then, then it goes on in another paragraph, next paragraph that no person except a natural born citizen of the United States can serve as president. And then it talks about removal from office due to his death, resignation or inability to discharge the powers. We've got some amendments that address some of these issues and and it talks about the president and vice president in this section and, it, it really, it goes on to describe other other officers. It contemplates disability. And again, we have some amendments that do that as well, as you know. But then it says that the president will receive compensation for his duties, and it can't be increased or diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected. That means over his four-year term. And it goes on. And then finally, in, in Section 1 of Article 2, it describes this oath of office that all of our presidents take. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will to the best of my ability, preserve, protect and defend the constitution of the United States. And all presidents since George Washington, I believe this is true, have added the the phrase. So help me God. I'm certain all in my recent memory have done that. And then, and then we go into section two, which is about, the, the role the president plays as commander-in-chief of the army and navy. And of course, we've added the air force it, 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 in the original constitution. It just contemplates army, navy, and militia. We didn't have planes. And, and then it, it sort of spells out what, what commander-in-chief means in a way. And then it talks about his powers with Advice and consent of the Senate. And we've already kind of established when you get to this point in the constitution, that the Senate is a little more special, a little more august than the, than the house in in some respects. Part of that is they serve six year terms. They, they do some, they do some things with advice and consent of the Senate. They do some things with the, the presidency that are laid out here and in the uh, article one, but, They, they appoint ambassador, uh, the president can appoint ambassadors with their advice and consent, ministers, consuls, and judges of the Supreme court. And you know how contentious those appointments have been of late. And then, and then there, there are uh, other judges that are appointed and heads of departments and uh, all that good stuff. And then it says that, that they can, the president can fill vacancies in the Senate and that fill these jobs and they, they they expire at the end of their next session. And then it goes on in section three to talk about the fact that there, there's kind of a state of the union. It's not quite, I I don't think they envisioned what we do now with the big media circus, but uh, it could even be done in writing based on the constitution, but it's a state of the union. It's uh, any, and he may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses or either of them in case of disagreement between them and he can determine when they adjourn their sessions and and all the rest it goes on and then there's one small section uh, section four that says that they can the, these people the president vice president and civil officers can be removed from office uh, on impeachment for and conviction of treason bribery and other crime, high crimes and misdemeanors you've heard that language sadly during the Trump administration a couple of times. And then it goes on to article three. Now I want to just point out some things and, and I, I know, you know, there are other articles here that address the powers of government. After you get past the judiciary, you have article four, article five that, that really addresses the, the amendment process. And then, and then you have article six that talks about debts and, 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 and other things and the, the, the supremacy clause and no religious test. So there's more information here, but but in, in this section that we just read that is about defining the role of the president of the United States, if you notice and you can you can go through this with a fine tooth comb, I didn't to spare you a, you know, a two hour podcast episode, but there's nothing about the economy. And and that is by design. You know, it's, it's when you say the executive power shall be invested in the United States, in a, in a president of the United States of America. What, what is that? Well, the framers didn't say. And I'm going to tell you why. They didn't say because there was a great debate about whether we even needed a president. There were some in the room in Philadelphia when this document, this beautiful document was written, who said, well, wait a minute. How do we know we won't have tyranny? We won't have another King George III. Let's not do that. We don't even need a national executive. Just let the Congress duke it out. Let's do a judiciary and a and a legislative branch and leave it at that. But the, the the folks that wanted a national executive won, probably because of the character and and just the stature, just the just the power that he exhibited when he walked in the room of of George Washington. The folks who wanted a chief executive won, and and there were many times where. Yeah, you know, one of the things you learn if you learn constitutional theory, there were many times where the men in that room had to compromise. Compromise was a theme of the constitutional convention that actually the successful one that actually led to the writing and ratifying of this beautiful document. But you don't see either directly or through implication any evidence that we could charge the president with the way the economy goes. Now, fast forward we, we create Alexander Hamilton creates a national bank and all, all of that leads to the ultimate creation of the federal reserve, the federal reserve bank, an independent bank with a board of governors that rotate this federal, uh, on, onto this federal open market committee and, and they, they set interest rates and they, they, they have a triple mandate. They're supposed to, supposed to grow the economy. It's a short way to say it. I've talked about it on this podcast before. And somehow it has come to be expected by the media, hence the American people, that the president will manipulate the economy out of bad times and is responsible for anything that goes wrong. And even Trump did this, even though I agreed with a lot of his governing policies, he took credit when the economy was doing well and he blamed Barack Obama when it didn't and he, he had a whole thing that he did, even though the president of the United States, other than having the bully pulpit, the big the big bullhorn that this office gives one, the president of the United States does not determine the, the growth or contraction in the stock market. The Congress doesn't really. Now, I know you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Now, if you had read that section on the Congress, you'd see that they can spend money and they've spent us into oblivion. We have $32 trillion. In debt, Yes, we do. And and we have 50 trillion dollars in unfunded commitments. So we really are, are upside down by by 82 plus trillion dollars. And, and until we start addressing that problem, we're not going to really have sound footing economically. The reason we feel the earth move periodically is because of some things that Congress has done. And then those of you who are astute with the Constitution, you know that the House has the purse, has the has the spending uh, authority and you say, wait a minute, you're skipping the whole house of representatives and their importance during their two-year terms to this entire process. So yes, there's a lot of blame we can cast, but primarily what I want to advocate, and I'm not a libertarian, I'm not a pure libertarian. I believe in way more liberty than, than most people, but I do want my roads to be paved. I want someone to come when I dial nine one one. I want I want some protection against bad guys. I want some parameters, some bumpers out there for to keep us in the road, uh, in, in in many, many respects, some level of social services, some protection for poverty and all of all of those things. I, I'm not one of those people who says I absolutely oppose redistribution of wealth. No, I I get it. I there's a role for government. And even within the scope of this Constitution, there's there's a role for government to play. So I'm not wanting just just anarchy. I don't even like Ron DeSantis's concealed carry law that he passed uh, behind closed doors where anybody can have a concealed carry permit. And I'll tell you why I have one. And I went through training for a day, and I walked into the room for that training with a bad attitude. So they did the big background check. I got qualified. I go to, the, or no, I think first I went to the training, and then you go through the big background check and you get qualified, and you get this wonderful permit that allows you to conceal carry. And I really don't do that very often, hardly ever. I I do carry in my vehicle sometimes, but 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 I but I don't I don't carry often because there are a lot of places I can't carry that I frequent. I can't carry at the school I teach in and I can't I can't carry in a bank or a public library or any number of other places. And I learned all that, although I kind of had a working knowledge. I learned what uh, Florida's stand your ground law means and, and how people violate it from time to time and what it doesn't mean. And I learned what happens after you, you use a handgun, even defending yourself. And, and that training, I've got to tell you, it was helpful. And now somehow we can just, Carry? <laughs> Just anybody? I mean I, I don't like that at all. Now, it doesn't go into effect till july first, and I hope I hope somebody, some judicial authority grabs this thing and fixes it because there's training that is necessary. I want a background check. I mean there there's some people who you know, I'm I'm sorry if you're far far right and you're gonna disagree with this, but there's some people who don't need to be carrying. And I, I sure don't want open carry. I don't want to see your gun. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm all about protecting yourself and all the rest. You can got a friend who has a four step rule. He's got a gun in his house, every four steps. And if, if it, if it, I mean, I think you might live in the wrong neighborhood if that's what you got to do, but if that makes you feel good about yourself, then wonderful. You go for it. As we say in the South, knock yourself out. <laughs> Not sure what that means exactly, but, but do it. That's fine. But Anyway, uh, I'm off track because I, I want to I go back to the, the economy. Um, yes, there are some government policies that are important. Yes, the president sets the tone. Yes, consumer confidence matters. We're dealing with that right now. And yes, the president plays a role. A confident, steady-handed president is good for the economy. I'm not making an argument that government is unimportant. What I am arguing is that government plays a very specific role. We let me, let me just give you an example. There are two extremes, aren't there, of government in the economy. There's a free market and there's socialism. We believe in a free market economy. Is that perfect? No, it's not perfect, but it's awfully good. We're okay with some redistribution of wealth. That happens in our system of taxation, so please don't shout, I don't believe in redistribution of wealth. What you're saying when you say that, most people who believe that are saying, I don't want the government doing a value-added tax or taking from the rich and giving to the poor. You know, I understand what you're, you're saying. I don't like socialism. Well, I don't either. We're not socialists. We're not even near socialism. We have some people who, socialism, we have some people who take us there, but we're not, we're not near there. And, and, and we want to be guided by the principle of basic economic freedom. But we do accept government intervention in the economy when the benefit outweighs the cost. But this can be subjective. So there, there are kind of two kinds of policy, and you know about them. One is monetary. That's just think of that as the activities of the Federal Reserve. It's its interest rates, money supply, and all the rest. And then there's fiscal policy. That's the stuff Congress does. It's taxing, it's spending execution of the laws and, and regulations by the executive branch. So, so yeah, the executive branch does uh, uh, get involved in the economy in that sense. And then there's this wonderful group called the CBO, the congressional budget office. And they're, they're supposed to be independent, at, at least in the sense that they're apolitical and they, they, they review legislation to, to determine its economic impact, its cost. and, it's damage it does to the deficit and debt and, and its cost over time and all of those things. You'll hear the CBO estimated that this bill is going to cost us $1.3 trillion or whatever it is. Then there's the president. And I want to just talk about this. The executive branch is, is you know, the, the constitution, which we just read, says the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. So the president is supposed to execute or carry out the laws passed by Congress. And what we've learned over the years is we hire for these jobs. We elect particularly effective speakers. I would try not to use the word charismatic because n- n- not all of them are, but, but people we want to represent us abroad and at home that the, the Roman government uh, philosophy, if I can call it that, 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 made its way into our constitution is that our government is supposed to protect us from foreign invasion and give us tranquility and safety at home that's it so that's where it all kind of came from but the president does set the tone communicates and leads and and leadership is something we could talk a lot about but but ronald reagan knew how to lead there's a yes i miss him there's a they 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 you know bill clinton sort of knew how to lead in, in some ways uh, uh, george h w bush nah not quite as much george w bush nah, sorry uh barack obama got it a little bit uh trump yeah for what you know it's kind of like that line in uh whatever that movie is jerry maguire we 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 love him for the man that he kind of sort of could be and then and then now president biden yeah at some point he might have been effective but not not so much so so there's a th- there's this desire that we have for the president to set the tone communicate and lead servant leadership that is effective that is concise that is articulate that is articulated well is just a beautiful thing to see so then you have departments of various departments of the federal government and the one that Relates to the economy is the U.S. Department of Treasury, and there are others others have a little something to do with it too. You know, we we've got commerce and 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 other things, transportation, but but the Treasury Department is supposed to ensure the safety and soundness of the nation's financial system and promote promote economic growth and stability. They think I don't see that in the Constitution, frankly. But that's that's what they say they do. I think they go way, way, way too far. They handle the financing of the national debt through the sale of treasury bills, notes, and bonds, and those have, those are delineated based on their maturity and savings bonds and all that stuff. And then then we have the the, the government workers. You know they're. They have got a problem, and they got a tough job. Mo- my experience with most federal government workers is they're awfully nice people, and they're and they're in their role be- because of an aspiration to do good. But they can't avoid the fact that they are handling other people's money, and and I've got example after example from my banking career of how that usually goes. You you might have experienced this: found money or handling other people's money or investing other people's money is just totally different. It's got it's it's the It's the one or two steps removed from it being your money. You manage your money more carefully with more vigilance. Even good people do. The government is in the business, like it or not, in in our world today. I don't think the Constitution uh, uh, anticipated it or planned for it. But the government is in the business in a lot of cases of deciding winners and losers in the economy. Even when their intentions are to solve problems, they decide winners and losers. If you can know where the government's going with something, I'm not talking about timing the stock market, although I guess you could do that. It feels, feels ugly to me that some Congress people do it, but, but I'm not talking about just timing the stock market. I'm talking about knowing, you know, what our defense department's going to do next or, or or what a law change. I, I remember when the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, was approved, we had to have we had to have Braille added to our drive up ATMs for the bank I worked for, which I thought was interesting. But but you know, companies in that business did better. So if you know those things ahead of time and you can anticipate trends and the direction government's going in, then that can be valuable to you economically. My students learn this stuff. They learn all about government in the economy when they, when they really start to, they call it adulting, go out into the brave new world and sort of separate from their parents economically. It kind of really comes home to them. They learn this, this distinction, this role of government in the economy. But this is interesting. And I'm going to wrap it up with this. The, the government is not supposed to that this, this will reveal whether a person is truly a fiscal slash economic conservative or a liberal. I don't believe the government is supposed to engage in trying to correct for market failure or market fluctuations. I don't believe our economy is measured by GDP or anything else you want to use to measure it. That is, that is, you know, measurable. I, I don't believe government is responsible for taking the troughs out of the deal. I think naturally peaks and troughs occur in the economy. If you look at GDP, it looks like waves in the ocean if you if you track it over a long period of time. But if I could show you, and I know I've said this before, the, the way it actually played out, whenever government gets involved, they prolong the trough. Again and again, go back to the Great Depression, go back to the 1970s, uh, go back to... The post nine eleven go back to two thousand eight nine, any any period that you now and now the COVID nineteen period, when government intervenes to quote unquote stimulate the economy, they prolong the the economic downturn. They're they're supposed to provide on the other hand, so they're not there to correct for market failure. You've heard the too big to fail. The you remember the AIG bailout, the cash for clunkers, the. The bailout for the auto industry, the TARP program for banks and and the, the stimulus and all that. I, I, the Government means well, but they are there to provide for the public good, the general welfare. We just read it earlier in this episode, right from the preamble to the Constitution, the purpose of government. It's important to understand the purpose, the underlying purpose. It's not to correct for market failure. It's to provide public good. Security, infrastructure. I'll even let you throw education in there, even though I don't think the Constitution contemplates it. I'll even add, let you add health care or, or some level of income support or and some, some wealth redistribution. There I said it. Not a lot, but some. But there you have it. Government Government believes it's there to ensure prosperity and that's that that is not the purpose of it can be a safety net. I'm, I'm okay with that. I think you are but but it's not there to take the take the variability, take the natural cycles out of the economy. but they believe they are and, and it's actually a they react out of fear. They're afraid of getting moved out of office and I like that fear. I think that's healthy. I want them to do good. But I don't want them reaching into the economy or thinking they have to. And I cringe when the press badmouths either side, anybody from the press on on, on any end of the spectrum, uh, liberal or conservative, badmouths anybody, uh, liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat, for their actions as if they are responsible for the economy. They're not. A pre- and I know we elect presidents, and, and and I know it's all about the economy, stupid. I know, I know we vote with our wallets. I know all those things, but but I wish we didn't. I wish we we elected presidents who did the right thing for the long haul. If you want to not get elected, or lose the next election, or even maybe get thrown out of office, start talking about entitlements and how we have to rein them in to balance the budget. Start caring about our national debt. You won't get elected. You really won't. Um, and that saddens me. Doing the right thing is not politically correct in this country. It's not. And that's sad. The market can self-regulate in some sense. Now, it doesn't completely because the depravity of man, Christians, you know this, the implications of the fall are severe and man is inherently evil. Yeah, that that's unfortunate. That bothers some liberals to hear. That bothers some secularists to hear, but but it's true. If you don't believe me, just look at all the corporate abuses over the years. And now you know what we do? We outsource our child labor. We say, oh, shoot, we can't do that here. Well, we can't even say we want to do that here, but we can't do that here. So we send it over to China, and we buy all our stuff for low cost from China. So man's corruption, man's evil, Paul, Paul explains this clearly. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all all have all have sinned and and he goes on to explain all all the what that looks like but in any case they their markets don't self-regulate because because they're these companies are run by people but and I want government to be sure that you know Tylenol is in the Tylenol capsule but so we all want some level of regulation we just don't want the volatility and the risk of just leaving things to the Conscience of of people, the moral state of people. I get that. So we want some checks and balances, is the way to say it. Some protection, but markets markets don't self regulate because of sin, and there, and we need some regulation in the markets. We insider trading isn't good. Martha Stewart learned that, but 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 still, less government government is not accountable for economic outcomes, and you know. Lastly, there's this, there's the, the, something we should talk about with respect to taxes. More taxes, tax increases do not necessarily put more money in the government coffers because sometimes they just exacerbate the situation. They, they tire people, they fatigue people into pulling back on innovation and, and investment and all the rest. There are some loopholes that we could close and that would be a good thing. For the, for the uber rich. I know some people are cringing right now and I'm okay with that. There are some loopholes that we could close, but we're not gonna tax our way to prosperity. You know this, if you're running your company efficiently, you're not gonna cut your way beyond running it efficiently. You can't cut your way to prosperity. You can cut yourself right out of business. So, so taxes really increase the cost of doing business I'd like to see corporate income taxes eliminated there. I'll just drop that bomb here at the end of this episode. Personal income taxes account for about 45% of federal revenue. 36% comes from payroll taxes and 12% ish from corporate income taxes. Imagine the growth. And I know the left would say, Oh my goodness, he's trying to favor the fat cats and the big corporations." No, I'm not 95 point some percent of these businesses are small who would be impacted by this. They go hire more people and make more money and prosper. You still get the income on the personal side when they take money out of the out of the business if you do it right. But anyway, that that would that would be a good uh, growth strategy, I think, but it requires a philosophical change and that philosophical change is government is not accountable for propping up the economy. It's not it needs to make sound long-term business decisions. You do this and I do this with our personal finances. We don't do the immediately gratifying. We don't posture, I hope, for our spouse or children and make economic decisions that give them the illusion everything is well knowing that it's going to bankrupt us. That doesn't work that way. We think longer term and I'd love it if government would would do so. Can government be more efficient? Yes, but if you take the entire Executive branch, which is most of the stuff we see government doing, and you eliminate it all together, and you don't tweak military spending or entitlements, you still don't balance the budget. Isn't that something? This the the elephant in the room is difficult to talk about, and government overreach is is certainly a problem, but it's a philosophical problem. I hope this is helpful to you. I'm, I'm going to talk more in our next episode about this topic. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about budgets and deficits because a little more time, because that's, that's really important. There's, there's mandatory and discretionary spending and a bunch of other things. There are a lot of buzzwords you hear in the press about government and the economy. And we'll, we'll uh, we'll talk about that next week. So I I appreciate, I appreciate you being here and listening to this rant on, on our government's role in the economy. I'm not pretending that this podcast episode could turn the tide, but I would love it if you would if you would put this episode on your social media, share it with friends, and push it out there. It's important to get this message across. It's important that our expectations of government change. I don't believe we're too far gone. I believe God is able, and I believe God is faithful, and I trust in the wisdom of the electorate, most of the electorate anyway. So thank you for for listening. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Send along a, an email to me at john at john Warren Media or use our contact form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at johnwarrenmedia on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.